This is Minnesota Native News. I'm Marie Rock. Anishinaabe writer Marcy Rendon has just been awarded the prestigious McKnight Distinguished Artist Award for 2020. Rendon is a citizen of the White Earth Nation who lives in South Minneapolis. She's a mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, playwright, author, and poet. The McKnight honor comes with $50,000. Reporter Melissa Townsend talked with Rendon about her work and the most recent recognition. This is Marcy Rendon. Awanakwe is my Ojibwe name. Marcy is my English name. So you are the Ignite Distinguished Artist uh, Awardee for this year. How's that feel? It feels very good. And I mean, I feel gratitude, honored, humbled. You know, it's a whole range of emotions. It was not something that I expected, even knew about. Like it was just totally not on my radar at all as a possibility. So it was quite a surprise. How did you find out? Um, Lori Poirier of um, First People's Fund had sent me an email asking if I would do a Zoom meeting about my writing in the coming year. I said, sure. And I had, you know, like in my mind, I figured that it was like a writing assignment, a writing job. And so I signed on for the Zoom that day. And there were all these people from the Twin Cities and Lori and that's how they told me. <laughs> and that's when I burst into tears. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So you burst into tears and then what happened? Well, then, you know, I was just like, I mean, I, I knew that last year Jim Denemy had gotten the award, you know, so like I, I knew that really big artists had gotten this award. <laughs> Does it cause um, you to sort of reevaluate your bigness? Well, I in no way feel, you know, like I I no way feel that big. What it means is that as a woman, as a writer, as an artist, I actually have to to own what I've done and what I continue to do, both for myself as an artist and then the things that I try to do for the larger community. Like really stepping into owning that and I think it's something about holding a place for other Native people and then for women, younger people coming up, or even older women, (laughs) because I'm certainly not young, you know? I don't, you know, there are awards and there's sort of the larger culture and establishment can recognize what you do. And then there's what you do, you know, for yourself, for your community. And this is an instance where those two things are coming together, it seems like, right, where you're getting acknowledged for the stuff that you've done, maybe from your heart um, for a period of time. Yeah. And looking at the whole of my work, because it isn't just these novels or writing this play or writing this piece of poetry. It's like, it's everything. Different shows that I've curated for other artists. So just, I think, looking at the bigger picture, or the broader picture. Does it change the way you think about the profoundness of your work? No. <laughs> I um, don't consider myself very profound. <laughs> and, you know, like the word distinguished, if I'm still mulling that word around in my brain. That is certainly not, you know, a word that I would use to describe myself or my work. I'm always conscious of trying to write from my heart. 
you know, using my mind, using the information around me and my life experience, other people's life experience to really write from my heart. So I don't know if you want to call that profound. That's, <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, 24 years, this award has been giving out, if my math is correct, 1996. You are the first Indigenous woman to ever get the award. So says the press release. On one hand, amazing congratulations. On the other hand, uh, what took so long? <laughs> you maybe don't want to weigh in on that, but if you do. Well, one of my first thoughts when they said that I had, you know, that I was the recipient of this award, and I might have even said it to the, that the group of people on Zoom was, I can think of a hundred other people that deserve this award. I think it was seven years ago, Anne Markison, she is a professor of economics at the Humphrey Institute. Her and I did the book about Native artists in Minnesota. And I remember when we first met about doing that research project, she said she wanted to interview all these Native artists across the state. And I said, Anne, we got to narrow our focus here because we're talking a lot of artists, you know. And so we finally narrowed it to the Ojibwe reservations in the state, you know, an outstate. And then there were a couple folks here from the Twin Cities. There are so many Native artists doing incredible, beautiful, um, you know, Laura Youngbird's work, um, Karen Savage, Wendy Savage, you know, the whole, that whole family, the Savage family up in Fond du Lac. Sarah Agaton Howes. I mean, I could just go on naming names, naming names. Jim Denemy, obviously, Frank Big Bear. I mean, all of these Native people who for years have produced work, been like the, the mainstay of arts in the Native community. And then the women in arts and even in writing, women tend to always sort of be thought of second, you know. So when we did the Native artist book, you know, I just kept saying, well, let's go talk to this woman. Let's go talk to this woman. Let's go talk to this woman. I, I think we're like the backbone of creativity in this region, in this landscape. So tell me about when you first started writing. I mean, I read in the press release that you decided to share some of your poems early on, but when did you start writing? I mean, I had been writing forever, writing and throwing it in a drawer. As a kid? As, you know, from the time that I learned how to write. Um, but in 1990, the, the job that I had, the company folded and we were all given like a year severance. So I, you know, I looked at stuff that I had been writing down. And one of the things that I repeatedly said was, all I really want to do is write, raise my kids and sew. And so I thought, well, I have this year, so I'm just going to write. Um, and so I started writing. And then like as that year severance was coming to an end, I thought, well, I better make some money. <laughs> if, if I'm going to do this, I better make some money. <laughs> so you have a, a writing life. like, And it sounds like this has all been self-made. You've driven yourself. You've directed yourself. How did you, how did you put that together? How did you make decisions about this is how this is going to go? Kids, sewing, writing, that's a lot. You know, like, how do you get paid for writing? You find someone to pay you. So I, I think probably the first thing that I did was I walked into the Circle newspaper and asked to write for them. And that if they liked it, would they pay me? You know, it was like deciding to, to write and to get paid for it. And then even in terms of submission, like submitting a poem here, or oh, 
a poem there or, you know, it was like training myself to say, well, what am I going to get paid? I read a number of how-to books on writing and marketing. And back then it was like how to make $25,000 a year freelance writing, something like that. Um, So I did a lot of that kind of just personal reading research on how to build a, a writing practice. Ever since the early 90s, I've been in a writing group with other people to critique my work, to, you know, have ideas about publishing, about where to submit things. I write some every single day. One of the things that really solidified in my mind the possible, well, there were two things. One was the, I got the um, Loft Inroads Writers Award for Native folks, and Jim Northrup was my mentor. That was in the early 90s. And doing that mentee-mentor thing with him, I really got a picture that what I was writing could be important to other Native people. So it, it, it you know, kind of validated what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. The other thing was that I got a um, Norcroft Women's Writing Retreat. It was a silent retreat. You would go up there for three weeks, and there were other women there, but you didn't talk, and you got your own little cabin, little writing shed out and, you know, off from everybody else. I, it was heaven. And I, got, I was there for three weeks, and I got more written in three weeks than I had gotten written in three years. And so I've, I've made it a practice to really seek out something like that every year since then get out everything that has been circulating in my brain because like you said with children and having family and having this life where there's people all around a lot of the the writing is occurring in my head sweeping the floor or getting this kid to school or picking this kid up it's like if I can get those spaces to actually write it out yes that is that is intentionality and discipline isn't it and crafting your life around the thing you want to do, which is is remarkable. You make it sound very, very uh, like obvious, but <laughs> I think it's remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I have tried really hard to do in all of the work that I've done is to create a mirror. You know, growing up, there were no Native books that I could go and look and say, oh, this is us. This is my family. This is who I am. And so really trying to create things where other Native people can say, oh, this is, this is us. The other thing that I tried to do is um, put my stuff in a present-day situation. Like we're, we're alive. We exist. We're, we're here. We didn't disappear. We're not riding around on horses or living in teepees. You know, that's a whole other culture for one thing, as opposed. So I want, I want like the other people to know that we exist. I want Native people to know that what's possible. I would like other Native people to think, oh, I can do this. You know, whether that's, you know, running for a public office or, you know, walking the Mississippi River. I mean, you know, it's like all of these role models that I've had of what's possible. Yeah, completely. It brings up a thing. Uh, we talked about the Raving Native Theater Company you started, right? Mm-hmm. 
And I think what was the uh, motto without feathers or flutes? Is that what it was? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's right. Feathers and flutes. Theater, theater without feathers or flutes. Yes. Tell me about the decision to sort of put that out there. Oh, I get so tired of like every, you know, like every native thing has a teepee. Every native thing has a flute. Every native thing has, um, you know, drums in the background. And it's like, we are so much more. We are so much more than these stereotypes. Um, and those things are also real. There's a couple, well, David, I can't, I don't know his last name, David, um, Winter Count. He has a book coming out, Winter Count. Angeline Boley has Firekeeper's Daughter. These are like modern they are current day stories that are coming out that, that were not locked in the past. And so that was the whole thing with the, you know, theater without feathers and flutes is like, if I hear one more theater piece where, you know, somebody said, <laughs> And like we could have background music be, you know, rap or, you know, <laughs> Hey, just a couple more questions about your work. Um, you write stories, poems, plays, essays, novels, um, which I guess are all stories. How do you decide which is going to be what? Like when you sit down to write, are you, do you sit down to write a play? Or do you think this needs to be a play given the idea in your head? Like, how does that work? So with poems, they seem to arrive like fully formed. Like, oh, write it down this is a poem with the plays so one of the things that i heard from someone was that you have to decide is this a story that the only way it would work would be on stage you know can it be a book can it be a screenplay can it be a something else but there are there are stories that just belong on stage that that's how they're going to get told so with those um there's actually this, the decision. This is going to be a play. I just finished this year. I was in, um, did a residency in Colorado for playwrights and f did the final rewrite on my script, Sweet Revenge. I mean, that's a play that I've been working on for 15 years, easy. Um, but And I've tried other ways of writing it. I tried to write it as a short story. I tried to do it as a screenplay and it just never worked. And it finally worked as a, as a script for stage and plays. I generally have some outline. I know how it's going to end. And then I create an outline to get to that end with the novels. I have not been creating an outline. I cut they're just character driven. I sit down and I just write or, you know, it's mulling around in my brain. I have, I think, four children's books, too, that Powell Summer and Farmer's Market families working together, creative nonfiction. And those, again, are a different process because you, at least I do, I want young people to get an accurate picture. I want the truth. I don't want there to be confusion about stuff for young people. And so in some since those are the hardest to work on because there's a lot more 
fact checking and making sure that things are accurate and that things are told in a way that is interesting for young people. Where I think with adult fiction, I can just make stuff up. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and I was telling my granddaughter, cause she, she's working on writing a novel now. And she, she was kind of stuck. And I said, well, what do you, what would you want to read? Like what would, you know, so in some ways I'm writing to entertain myself and hoping that other people are entertained also. Um, Love that. So I have different processes, I guess, depending on what it is that I'm working on. That makes sense. Interesting. Who are some of your um, uh, influences or the, uh, yeah, uh, influences or people who have shaped some of your work, particularly with the mystery writing with Cash? So when I, you know, like I think back to, to when I was in college and, you know, Scott Mamaday, Vine Deloria, um, Simon Ortiz, you know, like some of the early, you know, back during that time, the native writers who were really putting out Gerald Visner, who were putting out native work. And so there was a, a body of work that I could say, oh, here are native people who are writing, you know. And at that time, I wasn't thinking about, I was writing, but I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to be a writer. But I had, people were doing it, native people were doing it. Um, what I read for fun, entertainment, is crime novels. And, you know, so Lee Child, John Sanford, um, John Grisham, um, Stephen King. I probably read everything. I mean, I know he's in a different genre, but probably read everything that he's written except for his newer stuff. Fast-paced, you know, a main character that's getting things done. There's the Harry Bosch um, series. Um, <laughs> I don't know. That, you know, those are, that's the kind of stuff that I read. So I suppose I've been influenced yeah. by them. That's great. I, I want to ask this question uh, partly because um, I want to know the answer. <laughs> because I think it's important. You know, um, when I'm pitching stuff or have ideas for stuff, it's like, well, who's the audience? And why should they care about this? Do you think about that? I'm, what I'm trying to do is just to write a good crime story that anybody's going to want to read who enjoys crime. I'm surprised at the, the breadth of people who have gotten into the Cash Black Bear stories. You know, it's farmers up in the Midwest, up in the Red River Valley. It's social studies classes at different universities. It's professor at St. Kate's who's using one of the novels to talk about post-traumatic stress and historical trauma. Like I wasn't thinking any of that when I was writing. My goal was to just write a good crime story that people who like to read crime would enjoy. I wasn't thinking about all these other offshoots of interest. That's interesting. That's really interesting. It takes a life of its own. It means different mm -hmm. things to different people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I just think that as a writer, you have to, one, write the kind of stories that you would want to read and not be afraid. I know so many people who write, but they're afraid to submit. And they're thinking too much about who's the audience, who's going to want this, who's going to, 
instead of just writing and, and getting it out there. You know, it took me five years to find a publisher for Murder on the Red River. That was like five years of rejections from agents and publishers and more agents and more publishers, <laughs> you know, and I was still writing other things while those rejections were piling up. <laughs> um, you kept going. Yeah. What else is next for you? What new things are you taking on? Well, I'm working on a creative nonfiction about a young woman, true story, who ever since she was a little kid, she wanted to grow up and be a wildlife biologist. And she's doing that. So it's, it's a young native woman. And so a lot of her like science fair projects were based on, you know, native stories that interlocked, intertwined with science, this, the actual science of how the world works. And so I think that, yeah, I just think it's a fascinating story, her early interests, her science fair projects. Um, so I'm working on getting that into a, a workable manuscript to submit, working on the third book. I would hope that Sweet Revenge, the, the play that I finished, would. it's a, scheduled for a stage reading at the Oklahoma Indigenous Theater, but COVID kind of, slowed that down and they don't know if they're going to do it on zoom or wait until it can be read live. Um, but I would like to see that produced. I've pitched a new idea to the history theater for a play there that I need to wait until I see how far it goes before I even say what it's about. <laughs> so yeah, I'm just working on all of that. Cool. Would you want to see your plays go to Broadway, go to New York? Again, I'm not, it's kind of like this distinguished artist award. These things aren't on my radar. You know, I grew up in Northern Minnesota. I moved to the cities in 78. Many of the things that other people aspire to or even think about just have never really been on my radar. You know, I don't know what it means to have a Broadway show. I'm writing stories that I want to see told, you know, I'm working with um, a group of Native people who we meet once a month with folks at the Guthrie because there are people who, you know, there are actors, there are directors, there are playwrights who want to see their work in that kind of venue. And I want to support people to make that happen if that's what they want. That was reporter Melissa Townsend talking with the 2020 McKnight Distinguished Artist Award winner, Marcy Rendon. Rendon is a citizen of the White Earth Nation and lives in South Minneapolis. Minnesota Native News is produced by Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, made possible by funding from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and the citizens of Minnesota. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at MN